Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Dr. Stella Resnick, one of our country's foremost experts on human sexuality. Welcome, Stella. Thank you. Let's get right into it. I want to talk about one of the things that you talk about in your book, which you call the love-lust dilemma. Tell us about that. Okay, so that was in my first uh, book, or my second book, actually. That was in my second book, um, in the um, uh, the Heart of Desire, Keys to the Pleasures of Love. And what I was talking about there is essentially that we love someone and we may want to um, touch them and be with them and feel them and and hug them, but not necessarily to have sex with them. When we meet somebody and we fall in love, that in being in love with somebody at that point arouses us sexually. This is a new person. And what makes us fall in love with them is that we're playful together. We're in sync together. We find that that we really resonate. This is somebody who really sees me. This is somebody who understands me. This is wonderful. So we decide to live together or get married and we move in together. And at that point, what happens is that we sometimes get into um, the difficulty of sharing a space with someone or we get into the difficulty of really getting into an attachment with another person. What happens with attachment is that our style of attachments may be different. One person may be secure in their attachment. Another person may be insecure in the way they attach. If they're insecure, they may be insecure anxious, or they may be insecure avoidant, or they may be ambivalent. So it may be difficult to maintain an attachment that is based on just our love because we start to trigger each other. And what we trigger in each other are some of the old wounds that haven't been resolved. So that tends to interfere with our sexuality. Sex is really either going to be for procreation, which is to make babies, or it's going to be for recreation, which is to not just to bring new life into the world, but to bring new life into ourselves, to recreate. And that requires the ability to play together. And that's something that can get lost when people get into, um, they get into from what they witnessed in their own home, whether or not their parents uh, showed any signs of playfulness or, or affection or sexiness with each other, which is a good Stella, thing. You, you know, as well as I, that very rarely in this country 
do parents show affection and any kind of flirtation and sexuality in front of their kids. So that means we have generations of people who have never seen such things. Exactly. So so how do they know how to act when they start living with somebody since they've never seen it? How do they know what's okay to do? Exactly. That that's an issue. So uh, one of the ways of resolving that is to go into therapy. (laughs) (laughs) We take the whole country into therapy because of this parenting. Wow. Well, uh, to actually um, educate parents, to educate them that it's okay to show displays of affection in front of their children, that that. um, Well, you know, one of the difficulties is religion. Because there's nothing that kills sex more than religious um, uh, religiosity, because all religions really bar sexuality. Yes. And underneath their barring of sexuality, isn't it also, I mean, correct me if you think differently, but isn't it also that religions basically put down pleasure? Yes, in and of itself, underneath, in other words, sex is one kind of pleasure. There are other kinds of pleasures, mm-hmm. but religion actually almost bans pleasure. In fact, where is pleasure in our culture, Stella? Does it have a place? The place it has right now is adolescent pleasure, because a lot of adolescents are really uh, uh, discouraged from being in touch with their pleasure. Uh, there's a very limited realm of pleasure available for adolescents unless they are willing to go against their te- the parents' teachings or the church's teachings, or religious teachings. Um, because we think that children, young children and teens, particularly young children. We think that children are non-sexual. The truth is that children are sexual. Babies are born sexual. Little boy babies have erections in the womb. Little girl babies uh, begin to lubricate um, by the age of three days. So that means that the sex organs are online from the beginning, from the very beginning. But what happens is that as as children begin to explore their bodies and explore their sexuality, they're discouraged from touching themselves. They're discouraged from being curious about sex. They may ask questions about sex and get very limited answers. So so there isn't a steady developmental growth with regard to sexuality as there is with other aspects of our uh, physical and and emotional growth. How would you teach us to do it differently, Stella? How would you tell tell the parents who are reading this and listening to this what? How would it be different and better to approach their children when they walk in and the children is playing? They're playing with their genitals. You say that feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> that feels good, doesn't it? Yeah, that feels good, doesn't it? Um, I had a um, woman in therapy with me who described an event that took place between her and her son. She had knocked on her son's door. Her son was uh, about uh, 11 or 12 at the time. 
she knocked on her son's door to come to dinner. She said, honey, dinner is ready. Uh, Will you come downstairs? And he said, not right now, mom. And she said, why not? What are you doing? And he said, I'm masturbating. (laughs) How How old was he? 11 or 12, around there. Well, good for him. And she said to him, oh, okay, honey. Well, come downstairs when you're finished. (laughs) No pun intended. (laughs) Now, um, on the other hand, I had another woman who was actually a physician. And she came home from work one day. She had had, uh, twin daughters. And they were uh, three or four at the time. And the door was closed and she heard this strange sound coming from the room and it went boom, 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 boom. She said, what in the world are they doing? So she opened the door slowly and she saw that one of the girls was lying on her back with her legs spread and the other little girl had her index finger in that girl's vagina and she was going boom, boom, boom. And my client got so uh, uh, unsettled by it that she slammed the door. She slammed the door. Now, sexuality was an issue for this woman uh, with her in her marriage. And she felt so bad about it. She said, Gee, I hope I haven't destroyed them because I, I just slammed the door on them. And I, I was so upset. Um, so that was something that we worked on. That was three or four-year-olds. Three or four-year-olds. You know, you said something in a prior interview on this program that has stayed with me as a very important statement. And that is, you said, masturbation is important because if we don't learn first how to pleasure ourselves, how can we possibly teach another person who we're going to cohabit with how to pleasure us? Exactly. And that made so much sense that you said that it was it was uh, really uh, an eye opener, so to speak. When you when you it's an eye opener and it's, you know, (laughs) it's the other kind of opener. Exactly. That's why I added so to speak. (laughs) Well, um, masturbation has many values. Um, One aspect of masturbation is that, yes, you learn how to pleasure yourself. For women, it's particularly important, and this is one of the difficulties I think that many women have with regard to being able to orgasm, is that while little boys masturbate uh, at a very early age, little girls do not generally. That um, they learn not to go down there. Uh, They don't even have a term for for their uh, vulva, because the vagina is actually the entrance to the, to the vaginal um, barrel, it's called. But um, so they often don't even have a word for their vulva, for their vagina. Um, and female. So they make up words or use street language. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so boys' genitals are external. Girls' genitals are internal. And a lot of girls think that their vulva and vagina are ugly. 
a lot of girls don't, you know, they say, oh, that's so ugly. What makes a, what makes a vulva ugly? What makes a vagina ugly? They where, think, is this, where is this indoctrination coming from, Stella? Exactly. Where is it coming from? I have no idea. I to, never thought that when I was growing up. But I, I didn't have a close relationship with my mother, and I think that was a good thing when it came to my sexuality. <laughs> well, you were spared that particular piece of grief. But, but, it, but, but it, is, it is something to hear. And, you know, I know that, uh, that one of our other guests, uh, sexologists on the program, and uh, Dr. Lonnie Barback, you know, to, told us that, you know, before she wrote her book, For Yourselves, what, 40, 50 years ago, 75% of the women in the United States had never looked inside of their vaginas. They'd never opened it up or take a, taken a look with a mirror. They had no idea what it looked like inside. And, and some of it was because of what you're saying. They were scared about what they saw on the outside. It, 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 it put, turned them off or scared them. But they weren't born that way. Somebody taught them to be put off by what they saw. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, masturbation is important uh, for that reason, to discover what turns you on or how to touch yourself, what kind of touch you like and how different touches really bring out different kinds of feelings. That's one aspect of it. But another aspect of it is that masturbation is healthy. Uh, it's good for us to masturbate because it's arousing and it keeps us in a state of um, warmth in terms of being able to access our sexuality. And um, um, masturbation, when we masturbate also, um, it makes us more ready to have sexual contact with somebody else. So we don't, we're not starting from zero. We're already primed. Um, we're, we're open for sexual connection. If you had a magic wand and could direct the curriculum of schools, at what age would you have proper teachers teaching students about masturbation and how to masturbate and how to enjoy it and how to allow it to be pleasurable and to say the positive things that you're saying as an expert? I think it's really important that it starts with parents and not teachers. Uh -huh. That parents need to start talking about sex as soon as a, a child begins to show interest in their bodies and in their sexuality. And to be able to talk in simple terms and to be able to guide and channel that child's sexual energy rather than to discourage it which means that if you catch your child masturbating, that you're able to say, oh, excuse me, um, uh, dear, um, please continue, and um, I'll be outside when you're finished, just like my client said. Uh, to be able to know about sex from early on, as soon as they have any interest in sex, to be able to talk to them and not to just show them pictures in a book, but to also not just talk about penis and vagina kind of sex, but to be able to talk to them about 
um, the pleasurable aspects of sex, the pleasurable aspects of desire, and to allow themselves to feel the urge to desire and just to channel it so that if the child begins to masturbate or to begin to touch herself or himself in school or in front of the family, in front of uh, grandma and grandpa, to be able to say, you know, um, it's nice that, you, that you're enjoying touching your body, but I think it would be better for you not to do that in front of grandpa and grandma. <laughs> you know, what? Uh, listening to you, it occurs to me that what we need are Internet programs teaching parents how to talk to the children about masturbation, because your idea is a great idea that it should start with the parents, not with the schools. But parents won't know how to do it. Not only that, but parents usually don't know how to do it because they themselves are not in touch with their sexuality because of their own upbringing. And one of the things that we know from um, the literature on neurobiology and how we develop our attachments is that there's something known as, uh, um, uh, let, <laughs> let me just get it in my head. Um, uh, intergenerational transmission of trauma. And, yeah. and we experience sexual trauma from not having sufficient information about sex when we really do want to reach out. Now, from the age of, um, say, three, four, there's, uh, well, from, from birth on, to about age three, say, sexuality is mostly autoerotic. So a baby begins to, in fact, not just a baby, but the fetus begins to explore its body in the womb. And when they get to the genital area, they tend to linger there. And then they tend to go back there more frequently than other areas of the body. So they're actually experiencing some pleasure in well, touch. Right out of the, it's right out of our psych laboratories, isn't it, Stella? You, yeah. you do something that's rewarding, you do it again. Yes. It's rewarding again. You do yeah. it again. They stumble upon some place that feels good. They want to touch it again. Exactly. Exactly. And and so it begins in the womb. Uh, and of course, in the womb, there's nobody there to tell them they can't do it. Exactly. <laughs> once exactly. they're born, um, uh, there there's often parents who tell them, oh, don't do that. or Or they'll get... Um, one one woman told me that she was diapering her son and her mother was looking on and the little boy and as she powdered the little boy's genital area, uh, he developed an erection and the mother, her mother that was looking over her shoulder, raised her hand to hit the little boy and she grabbed her mother's hand. She said, don't you ever do that to my son. She said, that's child abuse. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And the mother, you know, backed away. And she told me, I feel that I protected my son from being sexually abused in that moment. Yes. And I was yes. so touched. Very touching. Indeed. Yeah. 
Yeah. We're really messed up as a culture with regard to sex, aren't we, Stella? It's not just the culture. It's the entire world, I must say. The entire uh, world. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's um, I think it started with the ancient Greeks, actually. <laughs> it's, well, you place it back further than I. I thought the Romans and the Greeks were, were a bit ahead of us. And it, it started with Christianity, where the real problems began. But maybe you're correct. Even the Greeks were screwed Christianity up. and Judaism. I yes, mean, of course. Judaism separates the sexes. You can't pray together. Yes. Um, and they, what did they have? Uh, something, a sheet between them? Yes. Uh, and the menstrual fluids are considered dirty. And so men can't touch women. Yeah. Because you never know if they're menstruating or not. God forbid you should touch them when they're menstruating. You'll, you'll be in some way contaminated. I mean, all this is really negative thinking about sexuality. And in some ways, it's a way that religion has had to control people because how do you control an animal you you neuter them you neuter them and in many ways this is a neutering that takes place in our society to be able to control people and women have been neutered more than men yeah. well because males have to have erections and have to uh, have um ejaculations in order to perpetuate the species. So males are encouraged to, uh, in some ways by the culture, to masturbate. Um, males have, you know, they hang out in groups and masturbate together sometimes. Man males are still also cheered on for having sex, where yeah. from what I've been told, there's still a lot of slut shaming going on in oh, this country. Yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot of slut shaming. But again, it comes it comes back to a denial of pleasure. Exactly. Pleasure has gotten a bad rap and it just gets getting wrapped down further and further. There's an old series of books by Michel Foucault, a philosopher, a French philosopher. I know him well, about, Stella. Yeah. Who wrote about the history of pleasure. And he talks about how. Pleasure has been denied all the way back to the Greeks. And I would assume by the Romans as well, because the Romans were very much a warlike um, nation, uh, warlike people. And that's very left brain, which is not sexual. It's the right brain where a lot of sexual desire and creativity and, and where that blossoms, discovery, sexual discovery blossoms, right brain. Let's so, move on. Let's move on from from early childhood training and yeah. masturbation, which you've told us is so important to allow. And let's, let's talk something about how sexual dynamics change in long-term relationships, because that's something that has held your interest, I know. Yeah. Well, uh, for one thing, when people come in and tell me that they don't have sex, I ask them first, do you kiss? Do you kiss? Very simple. Because kissing is really essential to maintaining a physical relationship in a long-term partnership. Um, kissing has... And it's not just dry kissing, which I call kiss-offs, that kind of kiss. 
That's a kiss off. Um, but a real kiss is with tongues and with swapping saliva because there's testosterone and estrogen and dopamine and all sorts of good biochemistry in the saliva. And that really starts a, a, a form of arousal. Also, people don't kiss if they're angry with each other. So when people are not kissing, what are they holding on to? What grudges are they holding on to? What ill feelings are they holding on to with each other? That has to be resolved. And when you talk about parents being able to teach kids about sexuality, they have to get in touch with their own sexuality. And that means they need to be able to get in touch with their love for their partner and their desire for their partner and their playfulness. Now, what we lose in childhood is sex play. Because if a child has been discovered by a parent in sexual play with a playmate, an age-appropriate playmate, the parent often responds with horror, with shock, just like my um, female um, parent of the uh, twins that kind of thing cuts off when children are playing. Children learn by play. When they are not allowed to play sexually, they're not learning about their sexuality. They're not learning about their body. How do children learn anything? They learn by playing. They play house. That's how they learn to be mommy and daddy. They, uh, that's how they learn to have friendships. Um, they play cops and robbers. That's how they learn what's right and what's wrong. Uh, they, they play at every skill. The more they play, the more their skill develops during that play. If they're not allowed to play sexually, if we think this ridiculous notion of childhood sexual innocence, that's complete nonsense. That's complete nonsense. Sexual innocence? I heard a, a conservative uh, broadcaster at one point on radio say that, that what he was so upset about um, the Clinton controversy. Remember when Clinton was um, um, shamed for having this relationship with uh, one of his interns under Monica, Monica Lewinsky got a blowjob in the in the in, right. in, in the West Wing. Right. As my husband said, there's something wrong with this culture if you have to apologize for getting a blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, th that's true. But on the other hand, we also have to acknowledge that he was in a superior position and therefore exactly. inherently he was dominant over that girl. Well, that as it would seem. However, uh, in the um, f the report that came out by a conservative writer, I forget his name now, um, he said there that in the interview with Monica Lewinsky that she had told her friends that she was going to be an intern at the White House and she was looking forward to a sexual relationship with the president and she was bringing her knee pads with her. 
She can say anything she wants, but the fact is she's still in a submissive position on the hierarchy. And I don't believe a general can have sex with a sergeant or a CEO can have sex with a secretary. Even if the secretary has a plan that she's going to fuck her way to the top, it doesn't mean when he he's the responsible party. You're right. You're absolutely right. right. Because because of the authority of the position. But Um, I must say, when I read that, you know, I thought that he was um, in a uh, one down position in some ways because he was, he was long one down. I'm sorry. But <laughs> I love the joke. Yeah. He was also one down because he's a man and a beautiful woman's offering him a blowjob. And how many guys are going to say no to that, regardless of what office they're exactly. in? It's and not he, an easy thing to do. And but, he's alone. His wife was traveling, you know, all that stuff. All um, that stuff. But the fact is, noblesse oblige. Right. Well, we were talking. I want to come back to yeah. what happens over time to sex in a relationship because we know from the from the from the drum beats that it seems to decrease over time and when we do a, a, a analysis of of data on it sex lives do decrease as a function of longevity of a relationship correct mm-hmm. but that but but isn't that almost c- contra our own self interests because here we have a willing partner that we live with that cares about us, hopefully loves us. We have an opportunity to pleasure each other. And instead of doing more of it as we get older, we do less of it. Yes, because one of the difficulties in long-term relationships is that people don't play. They don't play at sex. It becomes a ritual. That's one aspect of it. And I want to come back to your kissing. That point you made is so important. The difference between a kiss off that you call it, where couples just a a quick peck and really take some time to kiss each other. You kiss each other and to breathe together. When you're kissing somebody, what happens to the breath? You're breathing together and you're breathing each other's air in. And you're breathing each other's, uh, uh, you're tasting each other's saliva. Of course, you want to brush your teeth. You want to make sure <laughs> everything is nice and clean. I use Listerine um, myself. But you know what you said about what's transmitted in the saliva is mm-hmm. really important, Stella. And I want to come back to it and underline it. Okay. But before we do, I want to say more about this, um, what happens in a long-term relationship. Excellent. Think, Thank you. I think it's really important um, that people do get into a routine. So a lot of people, you know, they get into the routine where they uh, come uh, meet together. They, they touch, they, they kiss a few times. They touch each other a few times and then they go right into intercourse and then they or oral sex. And it's the same thing all the time. It's a ritual. One thing follows the other all the time. The same ritual. And it gets boring. It's just boring. So it feels so good. Even when it feels good, it's still boring. Uh, People even say, you know, um, the sex is good, but I'm not interested anymore. I'm not interested. It's it's the same old, same old. Um, 
So, so, so what like, kind of- I have a joke about that. I have a joke. Uh, son says to his father, Dad, how do you feel about same-sex marriage? He said, oh, your mother and I have had that marriage um, since we've been together. <laughs> same uh-huh. <laughs> Very, very cute. Very cute. So it's like tending a garden, isn't it, Stella? You can weed out one year and put all kinds of beautiful things in. But next year you have to weed again and you have to put more beautiful things. You can't just do it once and have it float forever. And our sex lives are the same way, huh? Exactly. And, you know, what what. What really turns us on sexually is the play. And that's what we have when we first get together with somebody and we first get turned on to them. It's the newness. It's the discovery of the other person's body. Well, even if you've been with somebody for 10, 20 years, you can still discover places in that body that that feels wonderful to the touch, to the to the to the nibble, to the lick, to the the whatever, um, the sucking. Um, where else can you discover on each other's body? And I also tell people never to make love without music. Tell us more about that. Music is how we dance together. Music enables us to get into rhythm together. I talked earlier today about interpersonal synchrony. Music is one of the ways in which we come into synchrony with each other. And and making love really relies on synchrony, on being able to get into resonance with one another. When we're in resonance, our hearts begin to actually and train to match in our heartbeat. Our breath starts to come together. We get into synchrony. We can feel each other and we can feel what's turning our partner on and what's not working. And we want to be attuned to each other's body in that way, not just go through the motions that we have gone through in the past that brings us to orgasm, but to delay orgasm as long as possible for females as well as as males so that we can build the arousal. That's what counts. And when you're building the way you're talking and you're in synchrony, is it but you're in a long-term relationship. Is there value to doing different things in some way in order to maintain the the, the spirit, like maybe making love in the kitchen or in the living room? Exactly. I was just going to say that, to get out of that routine of, oh, we're going to make love now, we got to get into bed. I tell people all the time, the bed is a place that sex ends, not (laughs) begins. So start anywhere but the bedroom, because people even say to me, you know, uh, I want to work on what happens for my husband and me in the bedroom. Well, the first thing to do is get out of the bedroom. (laughs) Get out of the bedroom. A bedroom is a place where we go unconscious, where we go to sleep. Get out of the bedroom. Start anywhere but a bedroom. Start by putting music on and dancing together and kissing. 
and playing with each other and put some candlelight on and 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 create an environment that is sexy for you. Don't just do it as a routine. Do it as a way of, of creating art. So you're saying eroticize the whole house, not just one room in the house. Right. You could create an erotic atmosphere. Right. You know, if one if one of you is washing the dishes, the other person can come in and stand behind him or her and just, you know, massage their body as they're washing the dishes and uh, or, or kiss the back of his or her neck or ear or you know, anything but saying, uh, you want to go uh, upstairs and, and fuck? Uh, anything but that. Yeah, anything. But, now, what about people listening? And, and this all sounds terrific to them, but they've got two kids in the house. Maybe they've got an eight and a 10-year-old, or maybe they have a 13 and a 16-year-old. What do you say to them about how, the, how do they eroticize the environment in a way that makes them still feel like they're not perverts for doing weird things in front of their kids. Oh, you you don't do weird things in front of the kids and you don't have to eroticize the environment. Just being with your partner in in your environment, but but being sweet and huggy and playful. um, That's enough. It doesn't have to, you know, this whole notion of, you know, I don't know, red, red lights and, and gauzy fabric and all that. That's nonsense. That that's not necessary uh, unless you really like it. And yeah. if you really, if you really like it, fine. Right. But, uh, you don't have to do anything special in your environment. And you certainly don't want to be overtly sexual in front of your children because that also has uh, ramifications that are not pleasant. I've had, uh, I had a, a client who had a lot of difficulty with sexuality and he attributed to the fact that his mother was very um, flirtatious and he felt that she uh, was flirtatious even with him. Uh-huh. He, he witnessed a lot of sexual play between his parents and he felt um, in some way threatened by it. And um, and he attributed some of his sexual issues to that uh, very openness, open kind of uh, sexuality between his parents in front of him. So you have to be careful, obviously. Um, You know, so much of what you're saying, Stella, sounds it sounds so reasonable. It sounds so natural, if you will. And, And sadly, it sounds like. It's going to take 50 or 100 years to get to the place that you're talking. I mean, when I think of the American public allowing their children to masturbate or, or allowing to, uh, uh, themselves to learn from a class on how to teach their children that it's OK to masturbate. Well, you don't have to teach your children that it's OK to masturbate. All you have to do is not shame them. Mm-hmm. Not because uh, you don't have to teach them. Uh, masturbating is something that is very natural and we're born with that uh, ability. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things we know about childhood development is that there are critical periods for everything. 
and uh, there is a critical period for sexuality. And that that it starts at around age three, four. That's mm-hmm. a critical period for sex play. Mm-hmm. Every culture has the same term. I because uh, I I ask all my clients because I have clients from Iran and I have clients from um, you know all over the world, Brazil and um, mm, Germany, uh, uh, England. Every culture has the term. Um, playing doctor. It's amazing. Uh, I asked my Iranian client, well, actually, uh, she's a um, supervisee. Um, How do you, what do you, how do you refer to playing doctor in Iran? She thought about it. She said, playing doctor. (laughs) Call it playing doctor. Mm -hmm. Why? Why is it playing doctor? Because the doctors are the only ones that are allowed to look at your genitals. That's why. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Let's talk about orgasms, male and female orgasms. Yes. So um, one of the ways in which I describe the difference between male orgasm and female orgasm is that a male orgasm is more like a sneeze, whereas a female orgasm is more like a yawn. Does that make sense to you? Uh, um, the sneeze I get because it's explosive. The yawn. Because one of the things that happens when a woman orgasms is that her uh, her vagina opens and her uterus drops uh, down like a V. In order to receive the sperm. Um, the cervix. Yeah, right. but but it's uh, and this is called a valley orgasm, and it's the most intense kind of orgasm for a female. The clitoral orgasm is, and that's a vaginal orgasm that I'm describing. A, cl- a clitoral orgasm feels more like a um, a male orgasm because it's more of a like that something that that um, happens uh, very localized. But with a a vaginal orgasm, it's like the entire vulva opens. And and it's, I I think it's more intense. I think it's a more intense orgasm. But when you're having both a clitoral orgasm followed by a vaginal orgasm, that is the most intense of all. And um, a lot of women don't want to have intercourse until they've had their first clitoral orgasm, and then they're ready for a vaginal orgasm. And don't believe any writing that says that women do not have vaginal orgasms. That is absolutely false. And well, the, other, the other day I was doing some research on this. And I remembered, and I've always remembered that you said on this program years ago that the clitoris is not a button and it's not a little stalk. It's actually a wishbone. And you pointed out how it has these two parts that go down on either side of the vagina and the clitoris is sticking up. It's now, eight inches. It's it can be as big as eight inches down into the wall. Now, what I was told recently 
is that an Australian urologist named Helen McConnell did anatomical dissections, and she has told the world that that part of the clitoris that you are describing, Stella, that goes down into the vagina actually encircles, she says, anatomically, the entire vaginal wall, she is saying, is made up of clitoral material. So that not only is that little button have an eight inch uh, root that goes down, but then it becomes what you called a barrel and the entire the walls of the clitoris. This is something that was totally new to me. And I'm asking myself, how the heck is it that we go to the moon, we have electric cars, we have penicillin, we have all these things, and it takes an Australian urologist until the year 1998 to describe what the clitoris actually is. Yes. And, and it's what, quite we see, what, we, what you see, uh, if you look into the vagina, into the vulva, and you see the little button there that's the um, supposedly the clitoris, that's the glands. That's the clitoral glands, which is um, analogous to the male glands. To the tip of the penis. Like the tip of the penis. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's what that is. That's the clitoral glands. And then there are the legs. They're called the crura. And the crura is like a wishbone that that comes out, but it's it's quite large. Um, well, what do you what do you think about McConnell's anatomical discovery that that crura that you're talking about then extends even further and becomes the actual walls of the inside of the vagina? Well, um, we'll have to check that out. The yeah, uh, uh, the walls of the vagina are are discrete from the uh, clitoral crura. Well, you'll have yeah. to check that out. It was new to me when I discovered, you know, came upon it this week. Helen McConnell, Australian urologist. You'll find her in a minute. Helen McConnell. Now, I want to talk to you about something that women are calling the orgasm gap. Have you heard that terminology, the orgasm gap? What they're saying is there's a direct relationship between the relative amounts of money that women make and male, or females make and males make in our country, on the one hand, and the percentage of females and the percentage of males that have orgasms, that those two pieces of data are highly correlated, and that women have a far fewer percentage of women in this country have orgasms than males, that males have something like four or five times the percentage. The number of men that, that have orgasms is something like 80 or 90, and women are much lower in their 20s. Have you heard yeah. about that? They're calling it the orgasm gap, and they believe it's politically motivated. Pol politically mo motivated. In other words, women's orgasms over a period of years, hundreds, maybe thousands, their orgasms have been suppressed. Well, that's um, uh, it's suppressed through childhood development that children, that girl children are much more protected from um, 
their sexuality, that their sexuality can be um, uh, in some ways abused or they they have to be careful because uh, um, males want virgins um, that, uh, you know, uh, why buy the cow um, if you can get the milk for free? That kind of philosophy. So there are many reasons why female sexuality is suppressed. Uh, whether it's related to their income, I I, I don't. Uh, well, what what the the part about the income, Stella, is that they're saying, you see how women make less than men. Women also have orgasms less than men, and both of those events are a symbol of male dominance. That's what they're saying. It's not that the money is related directly to the to the to the orgasm, but they're both they're correlated in the sense that they're they're symbolic of male domination and male control of women controlling the money controlling the orgasms controlling power basically controlling not a far cry from when we owned you right well uh males uh are tend, tend to be controlling <laughs> i mean there's no doubt about that yeah we're raised but, to be controlling yeah uh, uh but um and some women like that. Some women like to be, um, you know, with a strong male. Um, uh, certainly w- women tend to prefer strong men to uh, men that are uh, not strong. Uh, I talked a little bit earlier today about um, a client, a couple that I had where um, the male was a big, strong looking guy, very handsome. And the woman was, you know, very attractive. Uh, but what had happened was that she lost interest in him. And as I was working with the two of them, I saw how how careful he was with her, how he treated her like a porcelain doll. And that, you know, the way he touched her was so careful. He was so careful with her. And and, and as I saw that, I, I looked at him and I thought, gee, this is such a big, strong looking guy. How come he's he's coming on like such a wimp? And um, I could understand why she was not attracted to him. And I uh, think you were absent in, in this part. And I talked about giving them a little exercise. And the exercise was that... Um, they each had one word they can say to each other, and they were going to take turns saying that word to each other. And they needed to lean into it as they said it and and give it an expression, an emotional expression. So the word I gave to her was yes. And the word I gave to him was no. And and I asked them to start. And so I said, who wants to start? And he said, I will. And he went, no, <laughs> like that. No. And I thought to myself, finally, <laughs> this is so important, you know, to be able to say no to her, to be able to show her his strength, because women do like men with muscles, men with, with power. Um, we do enjoy that aspect, but we also like them to be tender with us as well, but not only tender and careful and soft, but to have a little. Mm. Does this part of that, that liking of the, of the muscularity uh, 
uh, very deeply uh, built in in terms of being protected because because at, at, well be. at the very animal level coming out of the caves the men you know were had to be large enough to protect the woman in the cave and i yeah. would wonder if we you know we're dealing with with still dealing with parts of that yes so one other thing that i know that you find very important in your work in helping people with sexual issues is is breathing essential and I, I want you to talk to us a bit about the place of breathing and enjoying sexuality. Well, uh, there's nothing that kills sex more than holding your breath. So if you get together with somebody or with your partner and, and your um, partner's touching you and, and you're holding your breath, or that you're you're aiming for a particular place and he's not getting there or she's not getting there. You're holding your breath. That's going to kill any sexuality. And if you're holding your breath, you're typically um, not only holding your chest, but you're holding your belly. And and we carry a lot of tension in our bellies. We somatize a lot of our emotions in our belly. If the belly is being held during sex, and this is particularly important for people, you know, with body image issues. If you're if you've got if you got a grip on your belly because you think your belly is too big, then you're preventing the blood from flowing deeply into your genital area. And blood flow in the genital area is what's responsible for both male erection and female lubrication. So it's very important to breathe into your belly when you're making love, to ha have your belly open and feel your belly moving when you're, when you're making love. And, and to breathe when you're kissing uh, and to get into a rhythm together. And that's, that's the value of having music, that you're both listening to the same music that's kind of choreographing your lovemaking. Well, that's, that's very beautifully said. So I have a little exercise that I do with people that I'd like to play with you with. And that is, I say to them at the end of a meeting or a session, I say, if you're driving home now in your car and you and you think to yourself, oh, shucks, I wish I would have brought that up during the meeting. So what I'd like to ask you to do now is take a pause. And if there's think of anything relevant that you might want to cover that we missed. And we'll use that as the end of our interview. Oh, great. Yeah. So you're saying you want me to respond to that? Yes, please. Anything that you would like to add that you think that if you were left right now, you might say to yourself, oh, darn, I wish I would have said this when I was with Richard. Uh-huh. Um, what else might I want to say? I, I took some notes here. Uh, Good. Ah, oh, okay. Um, one of the issues that I think t happens between male, uh, between partners, it could be two males, it could be two females, Good. but between partners is winning versus loving. And 
I remember at one time I was um, with my husband, Alan, and um, we were uh, having a spat and um, and he was really fighting me on it. And I said to him, I didn't want to fight with him anymore. And I said to him, honey, would you rather be right or would you rather get laid? (laughs) <laughs> and he said, quite well taken <laughs> I think that's a perfect place to end our interview and let every male every male hear that and eventually read it would you rather be right or get laid yeah and also I want to point out the importance of humor that people who laugh together stay together. People who laugh and play together, stay together. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's It's been been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me too, Richard. Thank you. Uh, Bye-bye. Bye-bye.